Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to Episode 4, Season 2 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson, and I am so excited to announce this month's literature with the essay entitled The $100 Prize Essay on the Cultivation of the Potato. Prize offered by W.T. Wiley and awarded to D.H. Compton. Evidently, in the year 1867, this Wiley character offered a $100 prize to the person that could best describe how spuds can be used in the day-to-day life in the best way possible, dangers we could consider, and, of course, how to cook a really good potato. And this man named D.H. Compton decided that $100 was worth the cost. And so he took it upon himself to detail, might I add, I'm not going to be reading the entire essay, to detail all of the different facets and areas of a potato. So without further ado, I would like to begin with the intro level aspects of the $100 spud is what I'm going to call it. Let us begin. Ahem. Potato Culture by D.A. Compton, Hawley, Pennsylvania. The design of this little treatise is present with minuteness of detail that mode of culture which experience and observation have proved to be best adapted to the production of the potato crop. It is written by one who himself holds the plow and who has, since his early youth, been engaged in agriculture in its various branches to the exclusion of other pursuits. The statements, which appear in the following pages, are based upon actual personal experience and are the results of many experiments made to test as many theories. Throughout the northern states of our country, the potato is the third of the three staple articles of food. It is held in such universal esteem as to be regarded as nearly indispensable. This fact is sufficient to render a thorough knowledge of the best varieties for use, the character of soil best adapted to their growth, their cultivation and aftercare, matters of the highest importance to the farmers of the United States. The main object of this essay is so to instruct the novice in potato growing that he may be enabled to go to work understandingly and produce the potato in its highest perfection, and realize from his labors bestowed on the crop the greatest possible profits. Soil required. Its preparation. The potato is most profitably grown in a warm, dry, sandy, or gravelly loam, well filled with decayed vegetable matters. The famous potato lands of Lake County, Ohio, from which such vast quantities of potatoes are shipped yearly, are yellow sand. This potato district is confined to ridges running parallel with Lake Erie 
which, according to geological indications, have each at different periods defined its boundaries. This sand owes much of its potato-growing qualities to the sedimentary deposit of the lake and to mineral properties furnished by the decomposition of the shells of water snails, shellfish, etc. that inhabited the waters. New lands, or lands recently denuded of the forest, if sufficiently dry, produce tubers of the most excellent quality. Grown on dry new land, the potato always cooks dry and mealy, and possesses an agreeable flavor and aroma not to be attained in older soils. In no argillaceous soil can the potato be grown to perfection as regards quality. Large crops on such soil may be obtained in favorable seasons, but the tubers are invariably coarse-fleshed and ill-flavored. To produce roots of the best quality, the ground must be dry, deep, and porous, and it should be remembered that, to obtain very large crops, it is almost impossible to get too much hummus in the soil. Hummus is usually added to arable land either by plowing under green crops, such as clover, buckwheat, peas, etc., or by drawing and working in muck obtained from swamps and low places. The muck should be drawn to the field in fall or winter, and exposed in small heaps to the action of frost. In the following spring, sufficient lime should be mixed with it to neutralize the acid, which is found in nearly all muck, and the whole be spread evenly and worked into the surface with harrow or cultivator. Leaves from the woods, buckwheat straw, bean, pea, and hop vines, etc., plowed under long enough before planting to allow them time to rot are very beneficial. Seaweed, when bountifully applied and turned under early in the fall, has no superior as a manure for the potato. No stable or barnyard manure should be applied to this crop. If such nitrogenous manure must be used on the soil, it is better to apply it to some other crop and to be followed the succeeding year by potatoes. The use of stable manure predisposes the tubers to rot, detracts very much from the desired flavor. Besides, Generally, not more than one-half as many bushels can be grown per acre as can be obtained by using manures of a different nature. Market gardeners, many of whom from necessity plant on the same ground year after year, often use fine old stable manure with profit. Usually, they plant only the earlier varieties, crowd them with all possible speed, dig early and sell large and little before they have time to rot, thus clearing the ground for later growing vegetables. Thus grown, potatoes are of inferior quality, and the yield is not always satisfactory. Flavor, however, is seldom thought of by the hungry denizens of our cities in their eagerness to get a taste of something fresh. Market gardeners will find great benefit 
from the use of wood ashes, lime, and the phosphates. Sprinkle superphosphate in the hill at the rate of 200 pounds per acre. Mix it slightly in the soil with an iron rake or potato hook, then plant the seed. Just before the last hoeing, sprinkle on and around the hill a large handful of wood ashes or an equal quantity of lime slacked in brine as strong as salt will make it. But for the generality of farmers, those who grow only their own supply, or those who produce largely for market, no other method of preparing the soil is so good, so easy, and so cheap as the following. It requires time, but pays a big interest. Seed down the ground to clover with wheat or oats. As soon as the grain is off, sow 150 pounds of plaster, gypsum, per acre and keep off all stock. The next spring, when the clover has made a growth of two inches, sow the same quantity of plaster again. About the 10th of July, harrow down the clover driving the same direction and on the same sized lands you wish to plow. Then plow the clover neatly under about seven inches deep. Harrow down the same way it was plowed and immediately sow and harrow it into two bushels of buckwheat per acre. When it has grown two inches, sow plaster as before. And when the buckwheat has grown as large as it will, harrow down and plow under about five inches deep. This, when cross-plowed in the spring sufficiently deep to bring up the clover sod, is potato ground first class in all respects. It is hardly supposable that this mode of preparation of soil would meet with favor among all farmers, there is a parsimonious class of cultivators who would consider it a downright loss of time, seed, and labor. But anyone who will take the trouble to investigate will find that these same parsimonious men never produced 400 bushels of potatoes per acre, and that the few bushels of small tubers that they do dig from an acre are produced at a considerable loss. <laughs> Men do not gather grapes from thorns, nor figs from thistles. To make potato growing profitable in these times of high prices of land and labor, it is absolutely necessary that the soil be in every way fitted to meet any and all demands of the crop. It is said that in the state of Maine, previous to the appearance of the potato disease, and before the soil had become exhausted by continued cropping, potatoes yielded an average of 400 bushels per acre. Now, every observer is aware that the present average yield of the same vegetable is much less than half of what it was formerly. This great deterioration in yield cannot be attributed to quote-unquote running out of varieties, for varieties are extant, which have not yet passed their prime. It cannot be wholly due to disease, for disease does not occur in every season and in every place. True, 
We have more insects than formerly, but they cannot be responsible for all the great falling off. It is traceable mainly to poverty of the soil in certain ingredients imperatively needed by the crop for its best development and to the pernicious effect of enriching with nitrogenous manures. Anyone who will plant on suitably dry soil enriched only with forest leaves, seaweeds, or by plowing under green crops into the whole soil to a proper depth is completely filled with vegetable matter, will find to his satisfaction that the potato can yet be grown in all its pristine vigor and productiveness. To realize from potato growing the greatest possible profits, and profits are what we are all after, the following conditions must be strictly adhered to. First, the ground chosen must be dry either naturally or made so by thorough drainage. A gentle sloping, deep, sandy, or gravelly loam is preferable. Second, the land should be liberally enriched with hummus by some of the means mentioned, if it is not already present in the soil in sufficient quantities. And the soil should be deeply and thoroughly plowed, rendering it light, porous, and pulverulent that the air and moisture may easily penetrate to any desirable depth of it. And a proper quantity of either wood ashes or lime, or both, mixed with common salt, should be harrowed into the surface before planting, or be applied on top of the hills immediately after planting. And finally, the cultivation and aftercare should be prompt and given as soon as needed. Nothing is more conducive to failure after the crop is properly planted than failure in promptness in the cultivation and care required. General remarks on manuring with green crops. Experience proves that no better method can be adopted to bring up lands partially exhausted, which are remote from cities, than plowing under green crops. By this plan, the farmer can take lot after lot and soon bring all up to a high state of fertility. True, he gathers no crop for one year, but the outlay is little. And if in the second year he gathers as much from one acre as he formerly did from three, he is still largely the gainer. It costs no more to cultivate an acre of rich, productive land than an acre of poor, unproductive land, and the pleasure and profit of harvesting a crop that abundantly rewards the husbandman for his care and labor are so overwhelmingly in favor of rich land as to need no comment. Besides, manuring with green crops is not transitory in its effects. The land remembers the generous treatment for many years, and if at times lime or ashes be added to assist decomposition, will continue to yield remunerative crops long after land but once treated with stable manure or guano fails to produce anything but weeds. The skinning process, the taking off of everything grown on the soil and returning nothing to it, is ruinous alike to farm and farmer. Thousands of acres 
can be found in various parts of the country too poor to pay for cultivating without manuring. Of the capabilities of their lands under proper treatment, the owners thereof have no idea whatever. Such men say that they cannot make enough manure on the farm and are too poor to buy. <laughs> Why not then? Commence plowing under green crops, the only manure within easy reach. If 50 acres cannot be turned under the first year, put at least one acre under, which will help feed the rest. Why be contented with 30 bushels of corn per acre when 80 or 100 may be had? Why raise 8 or 12 bushels of wheat per acre when 40 may as well be had? Why cut but one half ton of hay per acre when the laws of nature allow at least three? Why spend precious time digging only 100 bushels of potatoes per acre when with proper care and culture three or four hundred may be easily obtained? And finally, why toil and sweat and have the poor dumb beasts toil and sweat cultivating 30 acres for the amount of produce that should grow, may grow, can grow, and has grown on 10 acres? <laughs> the poorest, most forsaken side hills, cobble hills and knolls, if the sand or gravel be of moderate depth, underlaid by subsoil rather retentive, by turning under green crops, grow potatoes of the first quality. If land be so poor that clover will not take, as is sometimes the case, seed to clover with millet very early in the spring, and harrow in with the millet 30 bushels of wood ashes, or 200 pounds of guano per acre. Then sow the clover seed, one peck per acre. Brush it in. If neither ashes nor guano can be obtained at a reasonable price, sow 200 pounds of gypsum per acre as soon as the bushing is completed. This will not fail in giving the clover a fair foothold on the soil. Before the millet blossoms, cut and cure it for hay. Keep all stock off the clover, plaster it the following spring, plow it under when in full bloom, and sow buckwheat immediately. When up, sow plaster. When in full bloom, plow under and sow the ground immediately with rye, to be plowed under the next May. Thus, three crops are put under within a year. The ground is left strong, light, porous, free from weeds, ready to grow a large crop of potatoes, or almost anything else. Much is gained every way by having and keeping land in a high state of fertility. Some crops require so long a season for growth that high condition of soil is absolutely necessary to carry them through to maturity in time to escape autumnal frosts. In the western states, manure has hitherto been considered of but little value. The soil of these states was originally very rich in hummus. For a time, wheat was produced at the rate of 40 bushels per acre. But according to the statistics given by the Agricultural Department of, at Washington, for the year 1866, 
the average yield in some of these states was but four and a half bushels per acre. It is evident from this that Mr. Skinflint has had things pretty much his own way. His land now produces four and a half bushels per acre. What time shall elapse when it shall be four and one half acres per bushel? Who dare predict that manure will not at some day be of value west of the Alleghenies? New Jersey, with a soil naturally inferior to that of Illinois, contains extensive tracts that yearly yield over 100 bushels of Indian corn per acre, while the average of the state is over 43, and the average yield of the same cereal in Illinois is but little over 31 bushels per acre. In the western states, where potatoes are grown extensively for southern markets, the average yield is about 80 bushels per acre, while in old Pennsylvania could be shown the last year's potato yielding at the rate of 640 bushels per acre. There are those who argue that manure is never necessary, that plant food is supplied in abundance by the atmosphere. <laughs> it was also once said a certain man had taught his horse to live without eating. <laughs> but it so happened that just as he got the animal perfectly schooled, it died. Good, thorough cultivation and duration of the soil undoubtedly do much toward the production of crops, but mere manipulation is not all that is needed. That growing plants draw much nourishment from the atmosphere and appropriate largely of its constituents in building up their tissue is certainly true. It is also certainly true that they may require something of the soil besides mere anchorage. All facts go to show that if the constituents needed by the plant from the soil are not present in the soil, the efforts of the plant toward proper development are abortive. What sane farmer expects to move a heavy load over a rugged road with a team so lean and poverty-stricken that they cast but a faint shadow? Yet is he much nearer sanity when he expects farming to be pleasant and profitable and things to move aright unless his land is strong and fat? Is he perfectly sane? when he thinks he can skin his farm year after year and not finally come to the bone. The farmer on exhausted land must of necessity use manure. Manure of some kind must go under, or he must go under. And to the great mass of cultivators, no mode of enriching is so feasible, so cheap, and attended with such satisfactory results as that of plowing under green crops. The old plan of leaving an exhausted farm and going west in search of rich government land must soon be abandoned. Already the head of the column of land hunters have fetched up against the Pacific, and it is doubtful whether their anxious gaze will discover any desirable unoccupied soil over its waters. The writer would not be understood as saying that all farms are exhausted, or that there is no way of recuperation, but by plowing under green crops.
What he wishes understood is that where poor sandy or gravelly lands are found, which bring but small returns to the owner by subjecting them to the process indicated, such lands bring good crops of the kind under consideration. And further, that land in the proper condition to yield a maximum crop of potatoes is fitted to grow other crops equally well. Neither would the writer be understood as arguing that a crop of clover and one of buckwheat should be turned under for each crop of potatoes, where land is already in high condition and may not be necessary. A second growth of clover plowed under in the fall for planting early kinds, and the clean clover sod turned in flat furrows in the spring for the late market varieties answer very well to turn flat furrows. Take the furrow slice wide enough to have it fall completely inside the preceding one. Potatoes should not be planted year after year on the same ground. <laughs> Trouble with weeds and rapid deterioration of quality and quantity of tubers soon render the crop unprofitable. Loamy soil planted continuously soon becomes compact, heavy, and lifeless. Where of necessity potatoes must be grown yearly on the same soil, it is advisable to dig rather early and bury the vines of each hill in the one last dug, then harrow level, and so rye to be plowed under next planting time. The intelligent farmer, who grows large crops for market, will always so arrange as to have a clover sod on dry land in high condition each year for potatoes. It is said by many, in regard to swine, that the breed is in the trough, though this is certainly untrue to a certain extent. Yet, it is undeniable that in potato growing success or failure is in the character of soil chosen for their production. Why clover, or clover and buckwheat lands, are so strongly urged is, such lands have in them just what the tubers need for their best and healthiest development. The soil is rendered so rich, light, and porous, and so free from weeds, that the cultivation of such land is rather a pleasure than otherwise, and at the close of the season, the tangible profits in dollars and cents are highly gratifying. End of the first part on the $100 prize essay on the cultivation of the potato. You know, when I first came across this article, this essay, I thought it would be the funniest thing in the world because of how ridiculously in-depth this man goes into growing a potato. And I was just like, well, this is going to be fun to read. You know, I really hope I can draw and bring across what this guy's saying and like engage people with it. And let me tell you, I don't know how you felt, but when I was reading it, I was absolutely swooned by DA's delicate and excellent composition in writing about how to properly prepare the soil and fertilize it with green crop. Like, I'm not even, like, 
sometimes I say that kind of stuff sarcastically. I'm not even joking. I was enraptured with this man. And just like how he how like he went into the detail. I am very confident I could produce some pretty fine potatoes based off of what I had read thus far. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface here. We literally scratched the surface of the soil on potato growing. And we got so much more to go into. I Next week, we're going to discuss the effects of potato rot, how what causes it, and how to prevent it. That's important. And then, by golly, this man cross-breeded potatoes and investigated the cross-breeding of potatoes. I think that's called husbandry. I don't know. And so he, you know, goes through, I think there's like 15 or 20 different varieties of potatoes. Who knew? I only know of like three that are sold in the stores. So don't know what happened there, but definitely would want to try some of those out. And then finally, we're going to discuss about how to properly cook a potato in its many different varieties, right? But why didn't we start with this? Well, I'm one of those people that says, you can't fully enjoy the product until you understand the blood, sweat, and tears that were put into it. And by Jove, all of the plaster and gypsum and clover and barley and wheat and rye and buckwheat and whatever else you put in those things, you need to understand that this isn't something to be taken lightly. You know, I walked in, I was like, hey, you know, just growing potatoes. Okay, whatever. You know, bring out my tractor. Oh, no, they didn't have tractors back in 1868, as far as I know. And so they had to use animals to plow their ground and, you know, make sure that it was properly furrowed and harrowed and who the jazz knows what else. And so this was very informative and man i feel like i could walk in to a coffee shop da compton's there he's sipping a starch filled beverage from his potato farm that he invested back into this coffee shop and i can just walk up and say hey d how you doing sir and he'd be like oh man i'm doing great phil how you doing you know type of thing and like we could strike up a really good conversation and you know we'd have a jolly good time um so i'm really excited for the coming weeks here because this is going to be absolutely mind-blowing what we're going to discover about potatoes of all things we go from tubular creatures that should be murdered 600 different ways to tubular vegetables not far from a worm that can be manifested and eaten and consumed in 20 different ways in great variety and in surplus thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote for now.